I'm of the belief that it's almost the first dot-com bubble that's coming. I think that uh, the rise of wearables and trackers are actually going to pop um, in a year or two. One day I'm hanging out with the uh, Atlanta Braves grounds crew. And next thing I know, I'm driving hundreds of miles on a road trip to the Gulf Coast of Alabama to go visit a sod farm. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 13 years, 400 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the business news podcast section on iTunes. The Sports Business Radio Podcast. Why should you listen? We're going to help you learn directly from top sports and business executives, athletes turned business people, content creators, and those working in and around the sports world. Whether you work in the sports or business world, you're a student trying to work in sports, or you just want to add overall business skills to your tool belt. We're going to bring you knowledge that you can apply to your life immediately after listening to our podcast each week. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 followed by Forbes.com for three consecutive years. And on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. My guest on this week's show, Phil Wagner, the founder and CEO of Sparta Science. In pro sports, athletes are worth lots of money. If they're not healthy, they're no good to their team. What is Sparta Science doing to measure the health of athletes let their teams know whether they should sit or practice or play and keep them healthy so they can perform at a high level. We'll talk to Phil Wagner of Sparta Science about that on this week's show. Also on this week's show, Rafi Cohan. He is the author of the book, The Arena, Inside Tailgating, Ticket Scalping, Mascot Racing, Dubiously Funded and Possibly Haunted Monuments of American Sports. It's an entertaining read if you want to see how the sausage is made. When you go to a sporting event, everything from the mascots to how are they growing the grass to how is the beer and food being served, this is a fascinating read. I think you'll enjoy today's conversation with Rafi Cohan. Bringing you up to speed on the latest breakthroughs in the world of sports. Let's enter the technology lab. My guest is Phil Wagner. He is the founder and CEO of Sparta Science. You can find them on Twitter at Sparta Science, or you can find them online at SpartaScience.com. Phil, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Yeah, doing well. Thanks, Brian. Well, I'm really interested in your company. More and more companies like this are emerging to try and help players and teams detect injury and health. Why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your background and how you started Sparta Science? Yeah, my, my, uh, my background, you know, began as an athlete and, and really, uh, despite being a poor athlete, wanted to continue to compete, but seemed to uh, encounter a different injury in every location over the years. So I eventually uh, retired and um, as a college athlete, and so became a coach really to try to, you know, help others prevent some of the challenges that I had uh, if they wanted to continue and compete. Uh, but what I found was that there really was a lot of guesswork going on with everyone in terms of injury prevention as well as the rehab process. So I went to medical school and, and became a physician really to get a deeper understanding of 
how it's done with patients and, you know, how research and evidence is used and ultimately set up uh, a software company here in the Silicon Valley that could leverage both the, the applied piece of coaching alongside more of the evidence medical-based protocols to prevent and actually uh, rehabilitate from injuries. Athletes and teams have so much money invested <laughs> in performance now that, again, more and more companies like yours are being hired to say, hey, keep my athlete healthy, keep them on the court, peak performance. You do something, uh, a jump test, six vertical jumps on a force plate to predict injury. Explain how you do that and then explain how it can be the same for a golfer, a baseball player, or an NBA player. Yeah, absolutely. So the jumps we do uh, produce what we call a movement signature that is a sequence of force production that occurs when you perform the jump. And so really you kind of think a bit of a flow where the force is initiated through the feet, the knees, the hips, all the way up the chain to create movement. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, has happened over the years that have made this possible is it's more about the data than it is about the force plate. And the analogy I often use, it's like an iceberg where people look at the jump or the force plate and they think, you know, how can you predict injuries and, you know, how can all these conclusions happen with just the jump? But what really is being looked at is not only the force values, but we're looking at gender, age, injury history, sport, position, and the list goes on. And really when you start to add those covariates, those other elements from the database, what you start to do is you start to build predictive models. And from that, that's how you're able to say, okay, on a jump, all these golfers look like this, you know, yet all these football players look like that. So the data allows you to really create patterns and groupings, so to speak. Explain to us how you work with the uh, physical staff, the, the training staff of a team, for example. And, you know, do you give them a heads up and say, hey, our data shows us that this athlete is more prone to injury. You might want to sit him or her in the next game or for practice, <laughs> things like that. Are you getting down into the weeds to that level? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, that's really kind of the, the battleground right now with sports science is how you use that data. And really the challenge um, is a lot of it is emotional because data is bringing to light some insights that we haven't thought of before. And so as a result, there's naturally going to be resistance uh, from the staff internally. And I think that's, you know, that's an advantage that at least our company has because everybody's a former athlete and coach. And so as a result, there's a lot of authenticity behind the recommendations and a lot of empathy behind, you know, what's required to make changes. Um, but that's certainly probably the largest challenge is, is how do you interact with organizations to change their patterns of how they operate and how they make decisions. I mean, I see, I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers and oh, you know, okay. yeah. many teams now have like uh, sleep specialists. So the schedule comes out, you know, for baseball or basketball, hockey, where it's a longer season and mm -hmm. they'll say, okay, you need to sleep on these days versus like leaving right after the game and going to the next city. And we're going to put together a sleep schedule for you based on your schedule. 
teams are looking for every advantage they can have, whether it's sleep, whether it's practice time, uh, whether it's wearing wearables and trackers at practice. Mm. Explain to us a little bit more, you know, where you see this going. We know where it is today, but a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, is this something that I'm sure is only going to grow more intense, right? Yeah, you know, actually, I'm I'm of the belief that it's almost the first dot com bubble that's coming. I think that uh, the rise of wearables and trackers are actually going to pop um, in a year or two because there's a lot of frustration right now behind a lot of data that's being collected, yet not a lot of insights are being provided. And so as a result, a lot of the team personnel are getting frustrated because there's a lot of numbers coming at people, but there's not a lot of validation or communication behind them. And so as a result, even some organizations are like, you know what, we're not going to bring in any new technology because we got burned on the last one. And so that's that's one of the challenges. And I think with all this data coming in, really validating the technologies that are more validated are the ones that are going to persevere through some of these frustrations that organizations have. Um, I think the real key, too, is that what we're noticing is that where the data can be the most helpful is that every individual responds differently, whether that's through training exercises or hydration or, as you mentioned, sleep. One of the Major League Baseball organizations we work with even trains their Dominican players different than Caucasian because within the data, different patterns were found for different ethnicities. That's really interesting. And I would think... You know, someone who comes into the league and they had two or three knee surgeries or they had some kind of injury history, that person is going to be looked at differently than someone who comes in with no injury history, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other level. Each individual is different, right? But then the other example is that no individual, none of us are the same as we were last year, right? The bodily, the body's constantly changing. And how do we adapt even within ourselves, to find the best recovery programs, find the best training programs. And that's where data and sports science provides the largest value is you stay current. Because certainly, unfortunately, for those of us getting older, you know, the body is not a static, you know, machine. It's constantly changing. So when you collect data, I want to go back to something you just said. Do you sit yeah. down with your clients afterwards and say, let me explain this data to you, or do they just want the raw data and then they'll decipher it from there? Yeah, I think one of the opportunities in sports science that's not fully being taken advantage of now is what medicine does, and that's aggregating. So a lot of these health systems, they'll aggregate data amongst different hospitals, so that way they get to a critical mass fast enough to be able to make decisions around disease because not everybody has disease. And so with sports science, not everybody has injuries. And so as a result, you know, teams or companies need to pool data to get to that critical mass and therefore get those insights at a much faster rate. So when we sit down with our clients, we relay what the global trend is without sacrificing anybody's personal information. But those trends that are aggregated are really a key piece 
that medicine has taken advantage of and hasn't necessarily been done yet with sports. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Now back to our conversation. So is this information proprietary to the team? Let's say uh, a team hires you and they want you to help make their athletes healthier and prevent injuries, but I'm an agent for a player, (laughs) and I want to see what the data says because I'm trying to get the best deal for my player coming up, and I want to know if there's any, you know, uh, things I should be concerned about, stuff like that. Can it be shared with agents, or is it proprietary to the team or league or athlete that hires you? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the sports data or sports science is still a relatively new field. And so who owns the data is a question that's um, really in this gray area right now. And, you know, teams, in our case, that purchase our technology, they, they own the data, yet at the same time they're collecting information on individual athletes. So much like medicine, you know, there's a strong case to be made that the individual owns that data and therefore, you know, decides who and when to share that information with the others. And so it's, it's not really a, you know, a, a very clear distinction at the moment. It's, it's really an organization or an individual case-by-case basis. In pro sports, time is money. Uh, are your clients finding that deploying this kind of technology impacts the bottom line in a measurable way, or is it something that they can't yet measure? No, I think, you know, we've, we've uh, one of the ways we've differentiated ourselves is, is really the results. Um, we have a, a few universities that have um, really claimed insurance premium savings of over 300000 um, Most recently, University of Pennsylvania and University of San Francisco have seen year to year their insurance rates drop, you know, even last year by 300000 because of that reduction in the number of injuries, particularly the more severe ones that cost more money from a pro side, you know, the insurance premiums are less of an issue as, you know, the salaries are. And so around that piece, you know, we save a a professional team about 12 million a year based on reducing the amount of time missed by those players. And a lot of that is, you know, in some cases proactively resting them, in baseball or basketball where they're playing a lot of games, 
or in cases like football or soccer where the games aren't as frequent, it's really implementing preventative exercises so the individual stays healthy and available through the entire year. I'm lucky because of what I do. I get invited in by pro sports teams to tour their facilities. And yeah. I was in Tampa Bay. I've been watching Hard Knocks, so I've seen the Tampa Bay Bucks. But I was in Tampa Bay at the beginning of the year, and I toured their facility for about four hours. And my biggest takeaway when I left there was, holy cow, the rest and recovery methods that are being used for athletes is unbelievable, whether it's those uh, – cryo chambers where they they freeze you in there or you know everything from we have smoothies ready for you when you get off the practice field to you know other rest and recovery methods i would imagine that again this is a good business to be in because teams who have all this money invested in these athletes are only trying to protect that asset even more going forward Absolutely, and and particularly in a sport like football where most of their life has been spent training hard, um, lifting heavy, running a lot, and it's really a, you know, a landscape of attrition for a lot of these pro football players, which makes it different than the other sports. And so in particular, you know, pro football has been focusing on recovery, and yes, you'll see things like cryotherapy. A lot of organizations have what's called float tanks, or sensory deprivation tanks where, you know, you get you get into a pod and there, you can't see anything, you don't hear anything, and it's a high salt solution, so you just float in this water for anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. And a lot of, a lot of these recovery technologies actually come out of the military. And so the Department of Defense and the Special Forces, those are actually the groups that are leading you know, this edge of innovation, and then it trickles down to the pro sports after that. Um, just they tend to be pushing the boundaries of how do we excel and expedite human performance and how do we also facilitate the recovery. So, again, I imagine uh, you work with individual athletes. Sometimes you might be hired by agents, but you're probably mostly hired by teams to come in and, and work with their athletes. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if someone wants to find you, other than going to your website, is there a best way for someone to track you down and, and you know find out who you've worked with and, and what you've done? Yeah, our website is, is SpartaScience.com, and my, my Twitter is Dr. Phil Wagner is my Twitter handle. And so a lot of times we're, we're talking about you know some of the teams we're working with and their results as well as some of the research that's been coming out ranging from some of the things we discussed, cryotherapy, float tanks, um, a lot of the wearables, which helping teams and and really the landscape sort through a lot of the information that's really flying at everybody at at a rapid rate. This is an interesting space. I look forward to having you join us again. Phil Wagner, the founder and CEO of Sparta Science. Find them on Twitter at Sparta Science or online at SpartaScience.com. Phil, thanks again for making the time. Great. Thank you, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Ergon Office, who manufacture beautiful, high-quality electronic standing desks. Co-founded by former hockey player Sam Finn, Ergon Office is on a mission to inspire people to live a more active lifestyle because the human body just wasn't meant to be sitting 13 hours a day. 
When I'm not in the recording studio, I have a home office and I like to alternate standing and sitting throughout the course of the day. If I don't, my back gets sore or it'll lock up. I also get an energy boost every time I stand and work or talk on the phone. Studies have proven alternating between sitting and standing leads to increased productivity and a reduction in muscle disorders like back pain or carpal tunnel, which cost society close to $50 billion annually in lost productivity and medical bills. What I love the most about Ergon Office is that the desks adjust using an embedded touchscreen, allowing you to switch seamlessly between a sitting and standing position in seconds. You can even save your preferred heights for more convenience. Ergon Office's height-adjustable desks are available in Canada and the United States. Change how you work and be healthier in the process. Ergon Office has beautiful, high-quality desks with a unique design, and they couldn't be easier to adjust. Their customer service is great, too, so they'll help you find the best desks that work for your needs. I'm a really big fan of this company. Check them out at ergonoffice.com backslash SBR and use the promo code SBR10 to get 10% off any standing desk. That's ergonoffice, E-R-G-O-N-O-F-I-S dot com backslash SBR, promo code SBR10. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at ergonoffice. My guest is Rafi Kohan. He is the author of the new book, The Arena. Inside tailgating, ticket scalping, mascot racing, dubiously funded and possibly haunted monuments of American sports. He lives in New York City. He's written for GQ, Men's Journal, Wall Street Journal, Town and Country, and ESPN.com. Rafi, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your background and how you decided to write this book, because I've read it. It's fascinating. I want to know how long it took you, but give us a little bit of background on how this all came to be. Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, I've been, uh, you know, in the writing world for, you know, a decade plus now, and I've, I've sort of been across, you know, across uh, all across the board doing, you know, features and some, you know, booze and wine writing, but always sports as well. I did a lot of um, profiles of athletes and things like that, but I really always enjoyed this kind of like almost underworld subculture style of journalism right um, you know like the like the jimmy breslin school of journalism like when everyone's looking at one thing look at the other thing um and so as a sports fan to me you know the the stadium the arena has always just been this really fascinating complex place and when i would go to games even as a kid obviously i loved the games but i was also always fascinated by some of these other aspects of the game you know stadium life from the scalpers to the groundskeepers to the even the fans behaving, you know, behaving wildly in the stands. Uh, so I felt like there was just there was just this opportunity to really turn over some of these stones that we all knew were there, but we don't we never necessarily knew what was on the other side. So yeah, I wanted to. I had this opportunity to um, travel for a year, just you know, spend a year on the road, basically uh, hopping in the car and flying around the country and visiting stadiums and so that's that's basically i spent all of 2015 on the road doing that so it's funny i used to work for the portland trailblazers and i helped build what is now the moda center their arena i ran events there for six years so i when i read your book it covered so many of the layers that i used to have to deal with for my job so it really hit home with me on on a number of levels but I've got to know, like, I have my own opinions about events and stadiums and arenas. And But what was the most surprising thing that you encountered while writing this book and visiting all these venues? 
Yeah, you know, in, in some ways, in some ways, like the biggest surprise. This is. I, I hope this doesn't sound like a cop out answer, and I'll give you a specific as well. Because in some ways, the biggest surprise was kind of the extent to which each of these areas, each of these sort of subcultures of the of the stadium and arena world, were so fully realized in and of themselves. Exactly what you're just talking about. You know, I sort of went into this project thinking that I was going to be watching a lot of sports games. You know, uh, but in reality all the, the games themselves really kind of fade into the background. Right. You know, because when you're hanging out with the, the grounds crew, when you're hanging out with the mascot, when you're hanging out with the halftime performers, when you're hanging out with the, the beer vendors and whoever else, the game is just like completely just out of the picture. It's, it's, it's background noise. And so I was, so the more I dug, you know, the more I scratched the surface on each of these areas and sort of the, the deeper I fell, the more I realized there was to each of these worlds. To give you an example, um, you know, one day I'm hanging out with the uh, Atlanta Braves grounds crew. And next thing I know, I'm driving hundreds of miles on a road trip to the Gulf Coast of Alabama to go visit a sod farm, you know, <laughs> where, they, where they get their grass from. Right. You know, and, and it's one of those things where it's like, of course, it makes sense that, you know, stadiums don't grow their own grass. They have to get it from somewhere. But it's one of those things that you never really spend time thinking about. Like, well, where does it actually come from? Uh so, you know, the next thing I know, I'm literally in what's known as the Redneck Riviera uh, in the middle of a sod farm, <laughs> like looking in, in every direction. As far as the eye can see, you see baseball and football fields, just wow. you know, full-on fields. And it was so cool because you're, it's almost like being in a ba- it was being in like a baby nursery, you know, and these fields are brothers and sisters, and they're going to grow up and live in the professional sports arena somewhere, uh, and they're going to be rivals. You know, one, literally, one field was going to Auburn, and the one next to it was going to Alabama. You know, they were going to be like, you know, blood rivals one day, but right now they're just growing up next to each other, and it was really cool. So one of the things that struck me in your book, and I think it's so true, and we talk about it a lot on this show, you can look at Edward Jones Stadium in St. Louis, Qualcomm Stadium in San Diego, Turner Field in Atlanta. So much money goes into getting these venues built, and then they get vacated when the team moves, and then it's it's ghost town. And it yeah. leaves taxpayers and city officials holding the bag. We've seen this a lot in the last few years. I thought that chapter or chapters in your book, it was really interesting that you, you dove into that topic a little bit. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think it's that's kind of one of the most important topics, you know, going right now when it comes to stadiums, at least in terms of just, you know, sort of bottom line practicality, because as you said, you know, every year it seems, you know, the price tag just gets higher and higher for these new these new stadiums, you know, uh, and and we are turning our backs on these on these venues that are like, as you said, Turner Field, 20 years old. Right. It's, it's kind of crazy. Um, and Edward Jones Dome, you know, St. Louis is, you know, the, uh, the county is still paying off that place. And Oakland will be the same. They're going to still be paying off the renovations uh, from when the team moved back from L.A. once they leave again. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's really important. It's an important thing for us to sort of understand um, as sports fans and also as taxpayers. Uh, it really, it's, it was one of my ultimate takeaways. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to economists and, you know, doing, you know, doing a deep dive into the literature on, on stadiums when it comes to finances and things like that. And the bottom line is, is that at this point, I think it's safe to say that all the evidence suggests that stadiums are just not good economic drivers. Uh, they're, they're just not. And, you know, for, for as long as we can remember, that's always how they're pitched. We're told, 
you know, you make this investment now and you're going to be repaid tenfold with this, all this economic activity that's going to, you know, come on the back end. And the, the reality is that's, that's not the case, uh, which isn't to say that there isn't value uh, to, that comes from stadiums, whether it's sort of civic pride or quality of life. There is, you know, there, it is something that, that means something to communities, and it has for, for decades and generations, which is why we keep spending money on them, uh, in addition to the economic arguments. And I think at the end of the day, the thing that we need to land on at this point is cities and communities need to start having more honest conversations when it comes to stadiums, you know, thinking about them not as potential economic drivers, but as you know, in the same way we would think about a golf course or an arts district, you know, is this something we want to spend our money on? Is this how we want to spend our money? But then also being realistic in terms of the economic, you know, sort of back end, the, the forecast, uh, because when we make these really rosy, optimistic economic forecasts, we structure the leases in such a way that then the cities do end up holding the bag. So if we can be a little bit more honest about it, hopefully we can find ourselves in situations where we're unlike St. Louis, which is still paying off, you know, the dome, and unlike Cincinnati, uh, which is a, one of, a terrible case, which had to close hospitals by dipping into their general fund because they had all these optimistic forecasts that didn't come to fruition. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein, and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. Now back to our conversation. I've got to get your opinion on this. I said when it happened, the Chargers moving to Los Angeles was one of the worst decisions I've seen a pro sports team owner make ever. And I I, I looked at, you know, you're there for decades uh, when you do the math, I, I think it was going to cost them like $300 million to get a new stadium built because NFL was kicking in money. San Diego was kicking in some money. So it wasn't that much money. And you're owned by a billionaire family, the, the Spanos family. And if you look at the attendance in Los Angeles where they are playing at a soccer venue for the next year, <laughs> they had 6,000 empty seats for their first preseason game. Now, I know it's preseason, 
But your second fiddle to the Rams because you're going to be renting from them or playing, you know, as the the JV team in their venue. I was stunned when they moved from San Diego when you really looked at the math and what it was going to cost them to build a new stadium there after other people kicked in the money. And now you look at the fact that they can't even sell out a game in, in Los Angeles. I think, you know, the cities get a raw deal for how did you lose your team? But in this case, I would look at the team and go, what were you thinking leaving a city where you were for decades? You had a fan base, and now you're second fiddle in Los Angeles where there's so many other things going on, and you can't even sell out an NFL game? That's scary. I don't know. I, and I don't know what the thought process was. Maybe they felt backed into a corner you know, because there was this kind of threat of leaving that they felt like they didn't get exactly what they demanded that they had to go. But it is crazy, and I don't even know if they're second fiddle. I think maybe they're more like third fiddle. Because you have the Rams, but I think there's more enough of a legacy Raiders fan base in L.A. That might, uh, that might trump the Chargers as well. I'll say the one cool thing is that I love that they're playing at, what is it, the StubHub Center now? Right. Uh, that, the soccer venue. Just because like that at least is a sort of, sort of, at least can be like a fun kind of like sports sociological experiment to see what it's like to watch a game with 25,000 fans. Uh, or 19 not, if you can't sell the 25,000 fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 19,000. <laughs> I mean, that, that... But, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. And it, it's one of the things also, I think, it, really what it speaks to is we've reached this point where the NFL has shown us time and again that they just don't really care about the fans. They don't care about fan bases. They think that they're kind of replaceable commodities. And... It, at some point, it's going to come back to bite him, and maybe it will come back to bite the, the Chargers specifically in this case. But, you know, the more you move around, the more that you think that, you know, you have the monopoly power, and they do have that monopoly power. Where they, have all the, they have the limited supply for the seemingly infinite demand of cities that want to host a team. But at some point, fans are going to get burned enough times that they're going to, they're going to, react, they're going to react poorly to how they're being treated. I think Oakland, you know, Oakland fans will be an interesting case study as well because, you know, a lot of them, when I was hanging out with, uh, you know, Raider Nation, they were saying the same thing that, look, you burned us once and you went to L.A. If you leave again, what are we, where, how, can we, how can we go back to you this time? And I think it'll be, in, it'll be an interesting split because, you know, Raiders fans sort of have this kind of weird, like, pan-Raider identity that, you know, crosses all geographical boundaries. Uh, you know the Raiders never even actually had Oakland written on any of their uh, any of their gear, um, so that it, it, I think a lot of them will come back into the fold ultimately. But people people don't like being treated like this replaceable commodity. You want to feel like there's some loyalty going both ways. And yeah, the Chargers I think totally blew it, and they're I don't think they're gonna they're gonna do well. Well, the thing that's interesting with the Raiders versus the Rams of the Chargers, the Rams and the Chargers when they announced they were leaving, they were gone. The Raiders are continuing to play in Oakland, so they're basically a lame duck franchise. So seeing what the reception is in Oakland, knowing that most likely they're going to be leaving for Las Vegas in the near future, that's going to be interesting. We haven't really seen that before where a team has announced they're leaving, but, oh, we're going to stay and play here for a few more years and and hopefully you'll come out and support us. We only have a few minutes left, but you cover ticket scalping, tailgating, so many other things in your book. In in the final few minutes, is there anything that you want to highlight as to, you know, this is why people should pick up the book, The Arena, and, and read it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, all of those, I mean, all of those, in, in every chapter in the book, I feel like I had all these unexpected sort of interactions and experiences, whether it was hanging out with the ticket scalpers in Cleveland, and, and I ended up actually being roped in to sort of, uh, you know, the scalping crew, and I ended up actually helping them sell tickets some sometimes. At one point, I had a knife pulled on me. That was not oh, necessarily geez. something I was I was looking to happen. Um but yeah, I think it's, it's, I think it's across the board. I really tried to have these on the ground experiences with these kind of like characters and creatures of the stadiums and the arenas, you know, that hopefully at the end of the day kind of give, it gave me, like, I'll tell you, I'll say this. When I went back to a game, the first time I went to a game after spending my year reporting, I went just as a fan. It was the first time in probably a year and a half that I did that. It was so weird walking back into a stadium. And it was almost like I could see the matrix. You know, I could see right. all the like ones and zeros because I knew how everything connected. You know, I, could, I knew where the beer was coming from, where the beer pump room was. I knew watching the grounds crew rake in the dirt, knowing where the grass came from, watching the scalpers work outside, the hustlers, and knowing what they were trying to accomplish you know, sort of knowing their scheme, not their scam, their scheme. Uh, and it was just really cool. And I felt like it gave me just like this added layer of excitement and enjoyment for what going to a live sporting event was really all about. And that's the thing that I hope people sort of get as well, you know, from reading the book is kind of having this extra layer of enjoyment for, you know, for these live, for these live games. Now, I think your book does an amazing job of basically showing how the sausage is made, right? So, like, we all go to events as fans, but you're showing, like you said, everything from here's where the grass came from to here's what's going on with the beer. Here's what the mascots are doing. You know, here's what ticket scalping looks like. To me, you know, after working at a venue for so many years, I can't go to an event now as just a fan. (laughs) I go and I'm I'm... I, I see the matrix, as you said. You know, I, I see yeah. everything that's going on in my mind is, well, I wonder why they're doing this over here. I wonder how long that changeover took from, you know, hockey rink to basketball court. And is there condensation on the floor? And, like, I wonder how the game <laughs> ops is going to work. And is it the same game ops here as it is in, in this city? Like, everything, you, you start picking it apart. So I will warn you that you're going to have that experience going forward, that you're going to be dissecting everything going on in all parts of the venue when you go and see a game. But it's a fascinating read. Uh, the Arena, and you can follow Rafi on Twitter at Rafi underscore Kohan. That's K-O-H-A-N. And I'm assuming go to Amazon online or go to your local bookstores. That's the best way to find your book. Absolutely. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and pretty much uh, you know any, anywhere books are sold. Well, it's a really insightful read. Again, the people who are interested in how the sausage is made at sports venues and how events get produced, and it's just really a good read. So I, I felt like I learned a lot, even though I've worked in the industry. Like you said, uh, the whole chapter on uh, how the grass is grown and the sod is grown, like that was really fascinating to me it's like this big field of dreams except it's yeah. <laughs> a bunch of field of dreams like you said that become competitors later on so great job on the book i'd love to have you on again in the future and thanks for making the time to join us on sports business radio absolutely anytime this was a lot of fun you're listening to sports business radio I'll be right back Sports Business Radio is sponsored by boingo wireless the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the u.s 
Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at Boingo. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio. We're rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps, and, of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at sportsbusinessradio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thank Thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com. And subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And stay connected to the business side of sports. Only with Sports Business Radio.